I'm your host, Sean Riley, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of How Are You Helping? Welcome back to another episode of How Are You Helping, the podcast that brings to you notable leaders of purpose-driven organizations who share the mindsets, attitudes, and beliefs that got them focused on living a compassionate, altruistic life or career. In response to the tragic death of George Floyd at the hands of a white police officer, Derek Chauvin, in Minneapolis, a series of incredible protests have broken out across the country and the world in solidarity of black lives. Local, state, and federal governments are beginning to move toward holding police officers accountable and rethinking the very nature of policing. Today I want to talk about this moment in the U.S. and have a dialogue on addressing systemic racism in the U.S. If you're a frequent listener of the show, you may have noticed that I've stayed relatively silent over the past several weeks. But if you know me personally, you may know I've been actively sharing words from activists, protest groups, black friends, and supporting racial justice organizations. I've intentionally paused regular programming of this show to be an opening and a space to amplify black voices and to pause and reflect on how I can show up better for the people around me and the people of color. I've learned so much from listening to others these past few weeks during these George Floyd protests and actively celebrating and commemorating Juneteenth while educating myself further about black history. I want to recognize the energy of all that's been going on and use this platform as a way of amplifying black voices and sharing some ways we can help black communities and people of color. But rather than do it alone, today, joining me in this conversation are two very special guests. Jana Allen lives in Austin, Texas, has a degree in social work, and works in communication and community engagement for a governmental agency that ensures low-income Americans have access to quality health care. She's also the founder of Of Hope and Hunger, a blog she created for having discussions on race, her faith, and learning to love one another better. Also, joining us today is Eunice McKindy the former Assistant Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Portland State University School of Business and the current Director of Embrace Oregon, who also serves on Manor House Church's diversity team in Portland, Oregon, and is a longtime friend and advisor of this podcast. She will be sharing her perspective on the current state of the United States, continued police violence, and what we can do at the individual, organizational, and community level to help dismantle racism, injustice, and inequality. The three of us will be having a solution-oriented discussion on what this moment means for us in the fight for equality, what we can do as white people, black people, or colored people to support each other in the direction of progress, and how we can fight to end anti-black violence and create sustainable change or even simply just start an uncomfortable conversation to learn more about systemic racism and this moment in history. I'm here to learn, share, listen, understand, and have a constructive conversation. With all of that being said, let's dive in. Eunice and Jana, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you guys on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
So today we're going to start off with a round of rapid fire questions for Jana and then a round of rapid fire questions for Eunice. This way we'll be able to get to know you guys in a hurry before diving into some of our deeper questions on race and social justice in the U.S. Does that sound good? Sounds good. I'm not ready for this, but let's go. I'm I'm very ready. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Jana, let's start with you. What's your favorite movie on race? Holy so many. Favorite movie on race, Selma by Ava DuVernay, directed by Ava DuVernay. My Ooh, favorite. I just saw that. That's amazing. Yeah, favorite. What book would you gift to someone on anti-racism, social justice, or diversity and inclusion? Um, I would give them any works by Audre Lorde if for for black women in particular who are coming to this work um, just to have a safe space for themselves um, and, and working on working on kind of dismantling internalized racism. So I go to her. Um, and then for people who are coming to this conversation for the first time and just need help, I'd recommend Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Tatum. It is really helpful. <laughs> Why are all the black kids sitting together in a cafeteria by Beverly Tatum? Interesting. I'll have to grab a copy of each of those. What's your why behind helping educate others around anti-racism and social justice? My why um, is because I know the impacts of how racism, prejudice, discrimination impacted my life and the way I grew up. And I don't want other folks to continue experiencing that. So on the one side, there's the, the lived experience of, wow, I really want to help other people to not keep treating people of color, particularly black folks this way. Um, and then the other part of the why spiritually is just my faith in terms of the greatest commandment to love your neighbor. Um, and just trying to help us all be able to do that better and, and getting better at loving our neighbors when they're different from us racially or however they're different from us. So kind of a two part why. Beautiful. I like that you mentioned both. And what's your favorite quote on anti-racism and social justice? Oh, it's always it's always Dr. King. Um, but not the Dr. King quotes you see on MLK Day, because some people <laughs> like that. Some people have now like Santa Claus MLK, to where he just says inspirational, non-threatening things. Um, but my favorite quote is from Letter from a Birmingham Jail, where King says. Um, where he's defining true justice. And he says that real peace is not the absence of tension. It's the presence of justice. And he's just responding to particularly white clergy who've been rebuking him and saying, Oh, you're causing so much disorder with these marches and you're shutting down traffic. Oh my goodness. King, like, why are you doing this? Just focus on the kingdom of God. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like you guys are the stumbling block right now because you want superficial peace. You just want the marching to stop but I want the presence of justice and that's, that's going beyond the surface. So yeah, true peace is not the absence of tension, but the presence of justice and okay. Beautiful. That's a powerful one. Who's your biggest hero role model or mentor? Honestly, truly she's on this call. It's Eunice McIndae. Wow. <laughs> it's true. Yep. It's that, that's 100. I mean, I could say why, um, because see, I came to her in a, in, a, in a hard racial moment in Portland, Oregon, dealing with somebody who hadn't interacted with a ton of black people yet. And now that person's one of my dear friends, but it was a learning moment for both of us. <laughs> I didn't know how to react. I'd met Eunice. She was one of the few uh, 
black leaders I saw on campus. And I just like, she became just like a safe haven for me and a mentor for me. She bought me my first journal. She's made me a better writer, better speaker, better follower of Jesus. So it's Eunice. Oh, oh it's I'm going to cry. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> what a coincidence. That's totally understandable. She's one of my heroes and role models as well. She's a great person. Truly. We know that you live in Austin, Texas, but um, where did you grow up? Yeah, um, so I was born in northeast Louisiana in a small town, rural town called Lake Providence, um, predominantly black town. And then when I was four, we moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas, so my mom could go to grad school. And that changed the cultural landscape for me in a lot of ways at a very early age. And just experiencing being one of the only like people of color, black kids in a classroom. So yeah, grew up in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and then moved to Portland, then came to Austin. Great, awesome. All right, Eunice, now it's your turn. Oh Lord, what is your favorite movie on race? <laughs> okay, so I'm not even gonna lie; I did not thoroughly prepare for this, but I will say that as far as favorite social justice movie. I'm not really a theatrics kind of person when it comes to social justice. I love documentaries. Um, and so one of the ones that I've watched that I actually like is this is CNN did a documentary called black in America. Ooh, yeah. And that was really, really good in just learning kind of the state of the U S this is like early mid two thousands. They did something like this. Um, but honestly, any documentary, on um, social justice and usually the ones that news stations do I really really like Um, for one I feel like I can tolerate those a lot more because a lot of things are just really hard to watch for me um, during these times so I kind of try to stay away from a a lot of certain films and things but mostly most documentaries I also like the one on Black Panthers Um, I don't remember the exact name of it but that's another really good documentary okay Awesome. What book would you give to someone if you were to give someone a book on anti-racism, social justice, or diversity and inclusion? I feel like people on a basic level, I don't think our education system did a really great job of teaching us who people like Martin Luther King Jr. were, um, who Malcolm X was, even people like Bayard Rustin, like we know cliff notes. And just like Jana said, we know enough that we can post his quotes. And even when we post quotes, I don't even think we really know the essence of what it was saying. And so a couple of years ago, I actually read um, the autobiography of Dr. Martin Luther King written by, edited by Claiborne. I don't remember his last name, but that was actually really, really good for me in a time where I was kind of searching more from a faith aspect to kind of understand like, where is God fit into all of this? And okay, I know Martin Luther King was a minister. What does he have to say? So it was actually really good to hear his journey and how he struggled with his faith and all the different people he pulled from, like Gandhi and several other other leaders and that we don't read about in our history books. And then after that, I actually read the autobiography from his wife, which is called My Love, My Life, My Legacy with Dr. King. And as a black woman um, who's ambitious and driven. I absolutely loved reading her story. Um, just learning a lot about everything post like before Martin and even her life living with him and then afterwards and just her strength and the things 
that she sacrificed for the movement, but also how her gifts played into that. So those would be two of them. And then I'm just going to throw this wild one out there because I've been on this journey of just trying to see what the, how the gospel plays and talks about race. But I started reading a book called um, Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys, a Native American expression of the Jesus way. And the guy that wrote it, he passed away, but he actually is a Portland from a, a Native tribe in Portland. And that's actually been a really fascinating book to just read about like how Christianity was brought to the natives and indigenous populations and just kind of like this man's journey um, in discovering, you know, unraveling and unpacking faith and and what that looks like for somebody to kind of keep kind of that sacredness of, you know, beliefs, but also from like a, like a biblical perspective that isn't tainted by colonialism or other ideology. So that's a, a really, Really good one. I'm I'm reading currently. Wow. Uh, what's your favorite quote on anti-racism and social justice? If you can pack it all into one quote, I don't really have one to be honest per se. But I will say that today, a poem that's been on my mind that comes often, and I don't know if it specifically fits into the theme of anti-racism, social justice. But uh, Maya Angelou's "Still I Rise." Ah. I love that, and it's kind of like a really good. I read it oftentimes on the hard days. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Who's one of your biggest heroes, role models, or mentors besides Jana? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Jana's great. She's awesome. Um, I would honestly say, like, one of my biggest heroes is probably. It sounds cliche, but probably my mom. Um, she's just one of the. Strongest strongest women I know. And I think the older I get, the more I realize how much of like an inspiration she was. And I didn't even realize it. And just like her ability to just own who she is, everything about herself. And so she's, yeah, she's definitely my hero. Wow. That's awesome. And role model. Final question. Where did you grow up and where do you live now? So I live in Portland, Oregon, been here for almost 11 years, and I'm born and raised in good old Phoenix, Arizona. Awesome. And which one do you like better? Kidding. You don't have to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) Say Portland. No, I'm glad to answer it. Phoenix, I know. Portland all the way. If I had to choose, it'd be Portland. Um, But, yeah. (laughs) That was a sponsored question. All kidding aside, let's jump into some of our deeper questions here and serve our listeners. So I want to start off with the murder of George Floyd. His death caught on tape is not unlike many other murders of other black men caught on tape. So why is his situation different? And how did we get to this point that we're at right now? Hmm. Well, uh, so I have a couple of thoughts. I don't think there's much different um, when it comes to the like details of the murder of George Floyd, because there's been so many recorded. Um, a friend told me the better term to use is an extrajudicial killing. But I mean, it's, it's not the fastest phrase to say, but it's what happens when you have any time, because it can be at the hands of the police or in the case with Ahmaud Arbery, it's an extrajudicial killing when any person takes the law into their hands and they become the judge, the jury, the executioner, all that in one moment. 
Um, and so it's not it's not distinctly different from so many other extrajudicial killings of black men in history. Like I think about Emmett Till, I think about, and so you do have the, the nature of it being caught on camera, but there's been so many caught on camera. So I think the, the difference in this moment is that sometimes there's just, there's just this enoughness that I think awakens in the more dominant culture. And I mean, white culture um, where our allies, they become, they like they're outraged and they're, I guess, not being able to tolerate this also ignites something because I'm going to tell you the truth. When Trayvon Martin died and I was in high school in 2012, like I remember people marching in Florida. I remember people trying to march, like I've marched and protested at the killing of an unarmed black man on tape in Fayetteville, Arkansas, you know, but I will say, and my mom said this, my dad said this, and they both lived through, like, the civil rights movement, all this stuff, and they said, like, I've never seen such a diverse crowd in these streets. Like, we've, they've seen a lot, but they're like, there's just so, there's so much, there's so much unity in the outrage. Um, and so, I don't, because, I mean, but there's also some of the same things happening in the George Floyd situation that happens to unarmed black people all the time, where first, like, your body is killed, but then they start killing your character, where they're like, oh, well, let me tell you all about his past. And that doesn't happen when white people die. When white people die, they just get to die. Or when white people make mistakes, um, they get to have a troubled past or be lonely or have a mental health issue. But when black men die at the hands of the police, they find a way to criminalize them, right? So... There are some things that aren't that different, and so I don't want us. I don't want to look at. I don't want to look at the George Floyd situation and be like this was the most outrageous one because there have been some very outrageous things, outrageous things that have happened that just haven't been caught on tape. Um, and so I think I don't know. To me, one of the powerful moments of this point is it feels like a collective, just people from other backgrounds and people with different levels of privilege, be it white privilege, whatever privilege they're all kind of saying like, oh, okay, this is as bad as black people have been telling us it is. <laughs> That's how I feel. Is it's like a collective like, oh, y'all were serious that it was this bad? And we're like, yeah, it's this bad. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it, but I just, I don't want to, I don't want to get into the intricacies of why his death and the knee. I mean, I think there's, there's so many factors that make it appalling, right? Like him calling out for his mother, him, Right. saying I'm going to die, him saying I can't breathe. But at the same time, like I remember watching the tape of Eric Garner saying that he couldn't breathe, and I remember being outraged while I was in Portland. You know, so I don't, I think when people, when we try to isolate an event, um, we can kind of lose it. We can, like, lose the significance of the entire movement, but I'm also not, you know, tone deaf to the fact that there is a swell happening, and, like, now there's whole yeah. corporations saying Black Lives Matter, and four years ago, you could, like, People were like whispering it to me and Eunice in private conversations. They're like, yeah, no, I agree with you guys, but like, I'm not going to say that. But yeah. yeah, and there might also be something to be said about the fact that it followed so closely behind the death of Ahmad Arbery, his death. And I felt like that just really contributed to the fuel and the anger behind the death of George Floyd. I don't know if that's kind of how you feel about it as well, but that's yeah. how it came across to me a little bit. Yeah. No, I, I really agree. I mean, I agree. And I also disagree because was it 2016, Jana, you were still living in Portland at this time, or maybe not, you just, I don't even remember, but 
there was that weekend where we had um, with, I believe it was Eric Gardner, the acquittal or the whatever of the cop. And then the next day there was that Facebook, Facebook live where that woman recorded her husband in Louisiana, I believe, or that was killed by police. And then the next day you had the upheaval in the March in Texas where that black man came and shot a ton of cops. So even in that moment, from back to back, I felt even the response of the black community in that moment was the same feelings that we had with this Ahmad Arbery and George Floyd, but was not the same reaction of the white community then as it was with this back to back. And so for me, my theory is on it. I think that one, you already have, I think it was like the perfect storm, in my opinion, with you have COVID already that <clears throat> tossed people out of their regular routine. And I know in my regular routine, I'm not spending a lot of time on social media. If I am checking on stuff or the news, it's usually things that come to me or like things that I naturally want to follow. So if I'm not engaging with, you know, media or social outlets that like are outside of my realm of knowledge, I'm probably just going to be in the lane of what I want to listen to. And so I think in some ways, I do think for me, there is a spiritual aspect to it. I'm a believer. So my faith also says like, there's something like that, that was, that's happening. I think there's moments in time where things are just like meant to happen and change. But at the same time too, I feel like people just had nothing else better to do than to pay attention and, and have to sit with the emotions as opposed to just going back out into your day and day day to day life and rationalizing what you had seen on TV, you didn't you didn't have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, it was everywhere. What is it like seeing videos like this, and what is it like to finally see the country and even the whole world reacting to it? Yeah, I think I think that's it. I mean, there's other there's other, been other things in the news about how COVID nineteen has really adversely impacted communities of color. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also nothing new to America's like health equity landscape. But when you have a pandemic, then it really highlights all of these inequities that people have been talking about for years. I disagree with everything Eunice said that people don't have any other place to turn for distraction. And to be honest, I think people of color just were kind of fed up. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Like, no, like, let's just, you're right. Let's just be real. I mean, you have COVID, it's hitting our communities more than any other community. So we're like dying at higher rates. Then you're stuck seeing people on the streets that look like you dying, doing every like regular everyday things, like the things you can only do during COVID, go for a run, go for a walk, go cash a check. Like you're sitting here in this world being like, well, then what can I do as a black person? Like, yeah, I think it, So there's like the white outrage part of it, like where I feel like there has been this collective awakening where um, white folks have been like, oh, wow, this is as bad as you guys said it was. But then I think it's also like, I feel like I've hit a boiling point where (laughs) I'm just kind of like, you know, I'm not going to accommodate any of this in any fashion anymore like granted i'm always going to be like led by love led by god all that stuff and like not going to be violent none of that but like i'm not gonna yeah it's it's fed up and it's coming to this boiling point of like i'm not gonna sugarcoat things anymore i'm not gonna try to find this perfect analogy that 
compares like how much it hurts when black people die. Like, no, nope, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm just done. And so that's like when people, the only other option is just to take to the streets and start marching, you know, like, yeah, it definitely feels like a type of tipping point in this country. Like we've definitely hit a road mark here. And I can totally understand how like painful it is and how fed up you could be from seeing videos like this over and over again. What prejudices do I have that I never knew I had? What prejudices do you witness often and how do we deal with our own racial biases, learn more and see things from another perspective? I'm going to let Eunice take that one first. <laughs> and when you ask like what prejudices do I have? So like, what do we personally have? Like what prejudice might I have that I never knew I had? I mean, like, do we, okay, if we're speaking in terms of my, like personal ones that I've realized, I think doing diversity and inclusion work in general, I have to constantly check my heart because there are, I'm going to be real. There are moments where I've had it <laughs> with <laughs> explaining to other people the value behind the work that we do. And even more so than that, I think even with what's happening now, I'm just like, if you really don't get it, like if you really just can't even like get it even a little bit, to me, you're just choosing ignorance. Like you've made that decision. So I think my prejudice sometimes at its worst, like unhealthy, if I'm being real honest, is like wanting to write out like a whole entire race of people and not in like a bad way, just just more entering conversations with less grace because I have I've created an expectation that they're not going to understand or they're only going to understand to a certain level. And so I think that's something that I at times have had to check myself. And usually if I enter that space of just negativity and prejudice towards white people or whomever I'm doing this work with, I think that's usually my sign that like, I'm not doing a good job of taking care of myself and I need to like pause and step away. And I would say prejudices that I experience often, I mean, being a person of faith, you hear them all the time in faith circles. Um, the microaggressions that are really subtle. Um, I don't know. I think there's just so many like, witnessing often I mean people's assumption even sometimes that because I'm black like I know I can speak for all black people like just the assumption or I've had people that have you know like education wise when they find out that I got a degree are like overly congratulatory about it and like <laughs> comments like your parents must be so proud that you know they must have like you must you know you must be doing and just thinking to myself like actually my parents it was an expectation and I'm African, so, like, getting an undergraduate degree is, like, getting a graduating middle school. And so <laughs> there's just, like, things like that, you know, where there's prejudice or assumptions. Or if I tell people, like, I'm really hesitant to tell people that I was a college athlete because I don't want people to assume that that's the only way I was able to go to college or even saying that my brothers were college athletes because, I don't want them to assume that they weren't smart enough. They were only able to get to college because of that. And so there's conversations and things that I've heard um, or questions people have asked me that I witness all the time, especially when it comes to my education, especially I was just talking to a friend yesterday. This is the last one I'll say, but even like one of my guy friends is like, it's funny. I've noticed recently. And he's like, I never noticed this before that when people say hi to me, they'll be like, Hey, like, Hey, I'm just making a name. Hey, Jonathan. And then if you're with me, he's, he's like, they'll, they'll say, they'll say a normal hi to me. And then they'll be like, yo, what's up, girl? How you doing? And like, 
go into this phonics. <laughs> I don't even know why you taught like hood, whatever speech you want to call it, like broken English, as if they can't just have a regular hello to me. Um, so those are the kind of things like that unsaid prejudice of like the way to relate to me is to then have this like very um, un, not, I don't even want to say uneducated that's not the case but like this very like the only word I can think of is hood stereotypical variation of yeah, yeah stereotypical black stereotypical um, nuance of saying hi and stuff so that's those are the stuff I've experienced um, yeah I don't know about you Jana but those are some of the yeah. regular ones no I, that all resonates with me I mean I'm, I'm thinking of the night Eunice whenever me you and Chalsu were on Alberta Street in Portland and there's oh, last Thursday and you know what I'm talking about we yeah. had a back-to-back-to-back night of just like <laughs> racial microaggressions trying to go one block up Alberta Street where one guy like there was a dancer to come out. He's like, "Hey, like you all." And then they were they were white males, and they were like, "Oh, like can you guys hit the Quan Quan?" Or at first he just said Quan. I was like Quan. And I was like the dance. He's like, "Yeah, can you guys show me how to hit the Quan?" And I'm like, "Why do you think we know how to hit the Quan?" And he's like, "Ah," oh. and then we like walk away. And then he starts mentioning something about like I like to play basketball. It was all just very stereotypical. Next stop we get was like I don't even know what the next guy said, but the last guy was just like poor, like, ill-timed, nice man who was, like, from Australia and was like, I really like your hair. And me and Eunice and Jaltu were about to lose it because we thought he was going like, to touch my hair. We were like, ah, Portland. And then he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm from Australia. Like, I just, I, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, we'll give you, like, a little bit of a pass. But those things, those things happen all the time. And I think the issue with them is, um, going to be real, too, like, there is a difference. Like, there's a cultural warmth when I'm talking to other black people and other black women that like, yeah, I do, I do speak differently, but it's because they all, it's also like why you don't, there's that social scaffolding to where they get what I'm talking about. When I say certain Uh things about hair, they know what I'm talking about when I say certain things about like being Nordstrom rack and like, this was looking at me some type of way, they know what I'm talking about. But when in those moments, when like folks who don't have the same lived experience, they don't know what it's like to go through life in a black body come up and try to talk to us in these like in these stereotypical voices it's performative because it's you don't have this lived experience like you're just taking what you've heard in songs or like movies but like you and or maybe you do I don't know I don't know everybody's story <laughs> but but you can feel it and I think that's the thing too is I think for for me like I can feel when there's when someone's talking to me in a specific way because I am black and they have certain expectations of how a black woman should sound, how a black woman should think, how a black woman mm-hmm. should act or present herself. And so I can tell when they're like modifying themselves to meet their expectations of me instead of letting me present my real self and my own expectations. And that's the issue. Um, so anyway, that's that. But that, yeah, that yeah. happens all the time. And honestly, like what's been interesting, one of the things when I worked at a university that I I felt like so many young black women and even men, like the question I got asked the most was kind of like they the struggle of I don't want to have to show like I'm hearing all this stuff I need to do. How do I still stay true to myself, but yet like enter a space in and and like fit societal norms or what the expectations are without losing myself? And 
I feel like an adult, I still ask that question all the time, depending on what space I'm in, um, mm. especially if it's a new space. Yeah. To continue the discussion on what improvements I could make from a white person's perspective, do you think white guilt is at all useful? Or is it possible that white people are becoming too timid and not know when it's time to stand up with black people? Do you experience this? And how do we address the guilt and become a better ally? Hmm. Um, I think that this, all of this work of like diversity, inclusion, equity, race conversations, there's this emotional component and there has to be, but also like everybody's moved differently. And Eunice has taught me this, that like some people, when you're trying to explain things to them, like you have to use stories. Some people you have to use numbers and data and statistics to like get your point across. And that's really helpful. But I do think like for people experiencing white guilt, I think that's normal. Like if you're coming to this place of like, like being so like, oh my goodness, wow, like, okay, this is, I am benefiting from like 400 years of dehumanizing people. No, I didn't cause this. No, I didn't do this. But regardless, like this system benefits me because of my whiteness. And there are things that I don't have to worry about because of my whiteness, like interacting with the police, like applying for a loan from a house, like being in a wealthy neighborhood and no one questioning why I'm there. Like, it's fair to realize that and have some feelings about it. I think the issue, though, is what you do, what I've seen people do after they feel the guilt. Um, you just can't, you can't stay there because it's not helpful. Like, if every time, every time I, like, if I, if I were to have a conversation with my white friends regularly and all they do is say, like, how bad they feel, like, that's step one. You know, like, I need you to, I need you to move into action mode. It's the same reason that I can't get like as hopeless and depressed as like I could spiral is because there's work to do. And there's, and if you feel called to this, like we got stuff to do. Um, so it's the same thing with, with guilt is you can't stay there. Like I get that it might be, it might be somebody's initial emotional response to like really feeling the weight of this conversation. I also don't think it has to be everybody's response. I think people can have a realization. I think white folks can have a realization without wallowing in guilt. I just think if you experience the guilt, totally fine you just can't stay there and then keep entering conversations with black folks talking about how bad you feel um because then if things stay there then that like allyship is just really more it feel it can feel more performative again of like oh i feel so bad so i'm gonna post this to make me feel better oh i feel so bad so i'm gonna say this thing or reach out to this friend and then again the issue with white guilt is that it centers on white folks' feelings instead of, like, the injustices that people of color are living with. So that's why you can't stay there. Um, yeah. And I had a friend, her name's Virginia. Um, she did a really great Instagram Live where she was talking about how we need less allies and more co-agitators. And she was seeing how a lot of people were calling themselves allies because of, like, feeling bad and then having their social media mm -hmm. post and doing a thing. But she was like, no, I need you to be a co-agitator. I need you to help dismantle something. I need you to help have some uncomfortable conversations beyond the post. Um, because I'll tell you right now, a post that gets a couple likes can definitely help you feel better about some guilt. Like that's, <laughs> that's that, you know, like you know, limb thing. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, you know, but that's my thing about like, yeah, like white guilt isn't constructive. I get that it's again, first step, but it centers white feelings instead of, you know, proactively trying to help have better systems for people of color. I would agree. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think along with that too. Yeah. I agree with Janet. It's inevitable. I mean, I was just even thinking as Jenna was talking, I'm like, imagine if you lived in like Antarctica or the North Pole your entire life and like suddenly you're thrust into like Phoenix, Arizona, summer, 110 something degrees. Like it's going to take you a while to get acclimated to that. And so like if you've lived in a system that in some ways was not even in some ways that was built without thinking that was built with only thinking of you in mind as a white person, not people of color to finally then be awakened to the reality of like, dang, this, this may not be as like gold as I think it is. It's going to be uncomfortable because to even fully understand what somebody's going to do, you're going to have to be willing to step out of that system to, to see or to even empathize in some way with the way another person is experiencing or viewing it. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes on a basic level, I think where it's hard and people have a hard time even wrapping their minds around that guilt is the reality of like, I mean, the guilt's inevitable. It's going to happen. You're going to feel bad. And honestly, as you learn and step into those spaces, because although I, like Jan and I are black people, although, you know, black and brown people, people of color are, we've learned how to assimilate to the system, like to do enough to be successful enough. Like Jan and I would say, like, we are successful individuals in this system that was not built for us. Like we've made it, you know, although we've made it though, there are still some things that aren't for us in this system. So for a person to fully understand or grasp that is is a person, they have to be willing to get uncomfortable. They have to be willing to, it's going to be uncomfortable because they're coming up against areas and ideologies and thought processes that they've never had to think of or or even like navigate around but we have Mm -hmm. and so on a basic level people have like white people have to be okay with understanding if you're going to be an ally honestly a true ally will mean that you are in a state of discomfort probably 99.9 percent of the time yeah always because you're doing something countercultural to a system that was made to benefit you. You're going to have to be willing to step outside of that system in order to actually be a true ally. In order to stand side by side with me means you're going to have to give up some of your privilege and step outside of that system. Woo! That's it. Yeah, that's a great answer. Wow. So looking at this as a whole, how do we make this moment last beyond just a moment of goodwill? how do we make this results in tangible change? Do you think it begins with the police department? Do you think it begins with local politics? What do you think? I think it's, we've got to move away from, we've got to be able to like chew gum and walk at the same time. I say that to say like, we have, we have to, we have to be able to do this work on every level at once. Um, and so I get that right now, the, like the start right now, the focus is on the police and, I'll, and it, as it should be, and it, as it should be for a long time, because like the national focus is on the police, but everybody like listening to this podcast, like whether you're an officer or not, or whether you, you know, are, you know, connected to your local officials, whether you're doing your legislative piece, there's still something for you to do. And so I think we have to come to it from a place of like, 
how are we going to be anti-racist at the interpersonal level, at the like local level, and then at the national level? That's how I like my social work brain. We call it micro, meso, macro. And so you have to be doing this stuff at all levels at all times, just point blank period. Because even the situation with Ahmaud Arbery, those weren't officers who killed him. Those mm. were just some community members. One was a former law enforcement officer which is how he was able to like let this go on for so long and nobody say anything because he was connected to the da but he didn't have a badge on he's just just in his community and plenty of other folks trayvon martin george zimmerman wasn't a police officer he was just someone who found a black teenager suspicious so so we're really gonna make this last is what Eunice said we need people with privilege to keep being disruptive when things are starting to go back to the status quo. Mm -hmm. We need people with privilege to keep being uncomfortable with their family members when Thanksgiving comes and somebody says like, oh, well, you know, that George Floyd guy wasn't an angel, you know. We need you to show up to that conversation as the gravy's being passed and say, you know what, Uncle Ted, I hear you, but let me let me explain to you how when, when white people commit murders or mass shootings, no one ever does that. Let me have a conversation with you. So it's going to take everybody leaning in, um, I, on all three of those levels. Cause I, I get why people say like, even, you know, the queen Beyonce, she said last night, the BET awards vote like your life depends on it. Yes. True. Very true. But at the same time, like I can't, I can't in like good faith and like in my heart tell people that like, that is the end all be all goal because yes, like legislative change, legislative change makes things happen. Like civil rights act 1964 MLK accomplished that, but also MLK still got assassinated. Even when Barack Obama was president, like a black man in the highest political office in this country, nine people still got killed at a Bible study in Charleston by a white supremacist. So that's why I'm saying we can't just check off one box, be it with the police or at the legislative level and think that we've made it or we have arrived mm -hmm. um, because that's not there's not one solution. Like it's going to be us working to be anti-racist at all three of those levels. So that's my thought. Eunice, what do you think? <laughs> I, I mean, I agree with you, Jano, on that 100%. I think that in everything you're saying, I think, again, it goes back to the idea, like, people have to get uncomfortable being uncomfortable. I mean, even now, like, I've had to accept, too, in my own life, I'm like, when COVID started, I'm like, I just want things, I just want things to go back to normal and how they were. And then as I'm sitting there watching all this stuff on board, I was like, dang it. <laughs> I didn't want to be comfortable with uncomfortable. Like I didn't want to learn how to rest in the discomfort of distress yeah. and things just being in disarray until there's a new normal that is better than the way it was. And so I think if it's going to last beyond 2020, people have to be okay leaning into the discomfort of it. People have to be okay. And I think if it's also going to last, I think, yeah, what Jana said, it really has to interpersonal too. People have to be willing to do that work. They got to be willing to call out racism in their, in their own lives, in their, in the micro level, in their families to talk to their children about race and ethnicity and equity and all those things, having those conversations. Again, there are so many resources now that mm -hmm. everybody has been awakened to. There is no excuse for anybody to say that they don't know after 2020. If you say you don't know, you either live underneath a rock or you don't got internet or you just choosing ignorance. Like, I think if it's going to last beyond this, people have to continue to educate themselves. People have to continue to be okay being uncomfortable. And um, 
until people are willing to press into that discomfort, it's we're we're not going to see anything change. And I'm, I'm a again, I'm a believer. I'm a person of faith, and I also feel like if we're a nation that people say that we're built under the circumstances of God, then also we need to learn to separate the two to some extent. And people really need to start like the church needs to also figure out what the heck is going on within them and start reframing the way in which religion has been used as a means of politics and actually realizing that we have more, there's more that needs to be done and spoken out from that level to dismantle the the ideologies that were mixed into white supremacy. And even just recognizing that this American ideal of like one nation under God, um, we're, we're, we're not, the Christian nation that we think we are. And Sean, I'm sorry if you lose listeners because I said that, but that's okay. <laughs> no, it's totally okay. Thank you for being so open and honest. We're not who we thought we were. And that's a great point, Eunice. And I also wanted to ask you, given your unique experience being in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion for many years, how do you feel about rooting out the structural racism from the institutions themselves? How do we create structural change and not just merely diversity and inclusion? I mean, education is meant to educate people, you know? And so I think on a basic level, we got to start teaching people like real history. I had this like revelation a couple of days ago when I'm like sitting down, when I'm sitting down thinking about all this stuff and several years, like a couple of years ago, I went to DC and if you, I'm sure you all have been, cause y'all are, y'all are way more traveled than I am, but went to the um, Holocaust museum there. And I'm like going through this museum thinking to myself, I'm like, man, everybody's in here looking at this stuff like it is history. I'm like, this stuff, this, 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 I'm, I was going to curse, but I'm not going to. I'm like, this stuff is still happening <laughs> yep. in our, in our world. Like we're acting like we're looking at all this and like this stuff could still happen today. Some of this stuff is still happening. And it just made me think that like in institutions, we need to do a better job of helping people connect the past to the present and realizing that it's actually more linear than you think. It's more linear, even from a biblical perspective, everything, it's more linear than we think. This is a continuation of a story. Mm-hmm. And and so I think sometimes we teach in our institutions so much stuff that is like, like this happened then, and this is what we did now. And suddenly I saw this like tweet one day about like, history being all this crappy stuff happened. There's this guy, Martin Luther King. He was good. There's this bad guy, Malcolm X. He was bad. Uh, Malcolm X died. (laughs) Martin Luther King died and everything was good. The Civil Rights Act was passed and we lived happily ever after. The end, end of the year, close your books, go away. And then that's all you learn. And then you go to college, you learn a trade, you learned something. And the last time you ever learned anything about where you came from and how even those systems influenced your life was in elementary school when you were celebrating cowboys and Indians, like it was some beautiful, happy moment. And so when I think about institutions and how we dismantle that, it's like, we got to get real. Like we have to expose people to the realities, the good, the bad, and the ugly Mm. of the system that we live in. So that when people are in the boardroom, when people are, you know, building infrastructures, buying properties, going into communities, that they are consciously aware of how much a power they have to like 
change things, but also understanding like doing, being able to even just in their minds, think through the more than just themselves, more than just this narrative to see things from a bigger picture and how it greatly affects. And I think the greatest downfall of our institutions is that we don't do a good job of connecting our past to our present. Mm. And until we're able to help people see that linear connection, we're, the institutions will continuously breed young people that, yes, have degrees and, yes, go on to make money, but have no concept of the world that they even live in. Man, that's it. Man. Mm. That's a great point, Eunice. Thank you for sharing that what can I do as a white person or as an Asian person? What can a non-black person of color do to be better at this moment? Um, I think, I think one of the first things is like just being in relationships and like genuine relationships with, with people of all backgrounds. But in this moment, since we're focusing on like black people and the pains that we're having racially, then like, yeah, being in real relationship with black people and I emphasize the word real because if those if those folks are in a relationship with you but they feel like they have to curate themselves a certain way in order to maintain your relationship or maintain your acceptance or maintain um, like however you perceive them or being like received well by you, then that's really exhausting for them. And I say that from personal experience. So just being in real genuine relationship for one thing. Um, I think the other thing is knowing that anti-blackness is global and anti-blackness is in um, other communities of color. And we see it globally where like the darkest folk are treated not the great, not the best. <laughs> and um, just kind of like delving in, delving into what that looks like for your community or just seeing like how, how your community, whatever your community is, like how has it been a part of like perpetuating anti-blackness and then jokes about like, skin color, whatever, but just like doing that work internally, I think that's really important. Um, and I think the biggest thing is solidarity. That's what I would say for anybody who's like a non-black person of color is the same, all, all, all communities of color. When I look at the, the history of this nation, at some point, <laughs> there's been a time where like all of us had some type of legislation dehumanizing us. Nope. You know, yeah. like all of like even I don't know, I, I, there's like the Chinese Exclusion Act where we were like, and we'd like justified putting people in internment camps on U.S. soil, Asian folks. Like nobody is exempt from this. There's no model minority. No, 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 no. We have like, we got to be in solidarity, like period. Because when you look at the history, there was a time where they were focused on not letting us fully exist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the biggest thing is building solidarity and then having genuine relationship where, again, black folks aren't having to curate themselves. What would you say, Eunice? That's great. Yeah, I think, like you said, and also added, how does your privilege benefit? Like, how can you utilize your privilege or the way society views you to, you know, open doors and to pull others up, you know? Um if, if we're just going off stereotypes, stereotypically, I love the movie Get Out. Yeah. But even in that whole mix, you see that, like, the only person in that whole family that was enabled to be part of that whole process was the Asian American or the Asian dude that was in the mix of all of them. Yeah. And I think that in that scene 
spoke to that reality of historically, yes, obviously they've been persecuted, but even stereotypically, Asian Americans are viewed like privilege wise higher than, you know, black and brown people and kind of accepted in as, you know, all these positive things, smart and, you know, educated and whatever the case may be. And so I think even that circumstance is like recognizing even those societal norms and doing, again, like Jana said, doing your due diligence to disrupt that, doing your due diligence that when you see those things playing out around you, being able to call it out, being able to let people know what's happening in that space and also not being afraid to um, even step out of those societal cultural expectations and, and speak up and say something because there is an expectation from a lot of people, whether they admit it or not, because I work in this space that um, (laughs) Asian populations tend to be more docile and quiet and don't say much and don't speak up. And, and, and I see how that even affected a lot of my students as well too. And so empowering yourself and empowering even those in your community to even recognize like you have a voice, you have something in this society you could offer. You don't have to fall into line with what society says you have to be. You speak out, you rise up, you stand up and advocate for others just as you advocate for yourself. All right. I do want to discuss Brianna Taylor's story. It has been over 109 days now since Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old emergency medical technician, was fatally shot by police when they entered her house with a no-knock warrant in Louisville, Kentucky on March 13th. We still need justice for her. How did you feel about her story and what should be done about this? Um, I think her story, first of all, it's heartbreaking. Like, it's just, and that's what I mean by... Like, when you were asking about George Floyd at first, like, I can't, I can't ever, like, elevate the ridiculousness of a black person's death over another black person's death because they're all so ridiculous to me. Like, when I heard about Botham Jean being killed in his apartment because the officer came into the wrong apartment, that jarred me for the longest time. And then with Breonna Taylor, it jars me again because she was sleeping, like, and all, like, it just, it just... Yeah, so first of all, it's heartbreaking, um, and it's ridiculous, yeah. but it highlights, there's a quote by Malcolm X, that says, nobody wants to give Malcolm X's credit in school, people don't know it, but um, he said he's like, the most disrespected person in America is the black woman, and this is the moment where, to me, um, we see that, and I think it's why there's so many black women in particular who put themselves on the front lines of the movement and like Eunice is connected to, to, to Opal. Like she, like these are black women who have given the world this phrase to rally around black lives matter. Um, but at the same time, when it comes to like headlines of black women's death, there is a disparity and it's really, really strange and it's really upsetting to me. Um, but at the same time, I'm not in the business of pitting like, black men and women against each other but i do want us to have an honest conversation about the fact that black women get put on the back burner um just because i've seen some of those fights break out in the comment section where and where it just it just gets ugly where they're like no like like black men we're the most oppressed black women we're the most oppressed and i'm like oh like this is this is a this is a lot of energy in a conversation where we're both needing liberation but also like 
yeah, there is some truth. We're having gender discrimination and racial discrimination. Um, so, yeah, for Breonna Taylor, it's I. I don't. I don't know. I don't have any words for like how frustrated I am, how disappointing it is. This is still going on. How confusing it is because a law was passed called Breonna Taylor's Law that outlawed like no knock warrant, so that can't happen anymore. But yet there have been no murder charges. And actually, there's a there's an email generator you can send a link to the um, DA's office in Louisville, and I sent it, and it like automatically generates it for you. And you say like, my name is Shanna Allen, and I'm like writing to like inquire as to like why these officers haven't been charged yeah now they have their own automatic response yeah yeah where they're like oh like we're not the ones responsible for like making those charges and it's kind of like what is going on like but then they tell you in their form email we passed the no knock law though and i'm like i don't know what i don't know what is going on um so anyways i don't i don't have any succinct answers to that situation um other than just like as a black woman being really disheartened yeah, um, just really disheartened for the fact that this has gone on so long. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, like, again, I don't want to pit black people against each other. I do not want to do that. But at the same time, there is something so gut wrenching about, like, watching the first officer in the George Floyd situation get, you know, arrested and charged. And then the next three, which I think they're all like back out. But it was for a moment, <laughs> like one of them back out. It was for a moment, this moment of being like, oh, wow, like, we focused on this, something happened. And then there's everything in me is saying, like, why are we not focusing on Breonna Taylor? Like, why didn't we focus on Sandra Bland? Why didn't we focus on a Tatiana Jefferson who got shot playing video games in Dallas or Fort Worth? Like, so I don't know. This is just disheartening. That's all I got. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, as a black woman, it's sad. Same circumstance. If you want to, if you want to be JD, you might even say even worse than George Floyd. Like she was in her own house, you know, asleep. <laughs> um, and obviously, a law being passed indicates that there was wrongdoing happening, and yet no charges being made, and no no qualms to people in my circle, in my space. But like, people aren't raising raising any sort of hell about her death. You know, and like Jana said, I don't want to put, you know, our people against one another, but black women always come to bat. You know, um, we are the we are the loudest at times and I'm probably gonna get heat for this, but I feel like we are the loudest at times leading the forefront of these things. And it's just sad to feel at times that society is so silent. Even amongst our community, our men sometimes can be very silent on um, our deaths. And um, it's disheartening, I think, just to know that we live in this world. And I think it's tied. Like, just look at the history of slavery, you know. Um, There's so many nuances that go into the way black women are seen into this world, in our, in our nation, in our world, that go way, way, way before present day, you know, 2020. But it is sad as a black woman, you know, this is a woman that was doing all the things that you're supposed to do. Even Sandra Bland, same, you know what I'm saying? Like doing the things, career, job, all this stuff, successful, and yet, um, not the same level of anger and frustration expressed to bring justice to their deaths. 
And that's a burden. I've seen the burden black men are carrying and I've, four black brothers. And I know Jana has a brother that she's close to. Like we've seen what all this stuff has done to many of them, you know, emotionally and spiritually. And, and it's been hard for them. Um, But even as a black woman, I think even the societal pressure that we, we feel sometimes to carry the weight of that pain that they're carrying as well as our own um, and to be strong and not to show emotion and not to grieve, but just to keep pushing forward. Um, I'm thankful for the self-care movement, empowering us to take better self-care. But at the same time, it is a lot to carry. And that doesn't change that love and that burden we carry does not change. Even if we marry somebody or, you know, or with somebody that's different from us, we always carry that into everything that we do, every facet of our lives. So it's really disheartening to kind of see how it's kind of going to, honestly, I feel like it's just going to be brushed under the rug at some point. People are going to stop talking about it. Yeah, Eunice, it's nice that you touched on self-care. What are some of your tips for maintaining joy when there's so much grief, when there's so much hurt and pain? How do we maintain our joy and stay positive in times like these? Um, For me, I mean, obviously my faith is a big part of that. Um, And from my faith, I mean, I I have one of the best, communities of women in my life (laughs) that I'm so grateful for. Um, And that's, that's my safe place. It's either like, you know, my girlfriends, I can call up on the phone to just like be real and vent, not have to have a filter and say what I want to say or wish what I wish I could have said that day in that meeting or to that person. Um, And then also just the ability to like have people around me that I can relate to. I think, Secondly, self-care for me sometimes is just um, reminding myself that it's, and I posted stuff a couple of days ago, kind of what has got me through, but I think realizing, recognizing, accepting that it's a marathon and it's not a sprint. Um, this stuff takes time. I think the fact that I feel called to this space gives me grace for a lot of things. Um but more than that, I think one of the things I've had, I'm really been practicing and really dealing with, because I went through a pretty dark phase early this year, I think was just like falling into good rhythms. And what I mean by that is just like an acceptance for the way like my body just kind of like moves and really tuning into what like my spirit, my soul and my body's needing and being attentive to that because I think it's so easy to go 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 and I think what I'm so thankful for in this COVID world is that it forced and I know not I know not everybody has this is blessed with this opportunity but the ability for me to be able to slow down and really just like focus on you know pushing myself to like get up go for a walk not be sitting at my computer all day shutting it down at five like having healthier boundaries I think those things have been really helpful in keeping me sane. But honestly, like my faith, but like really, really, really my community of friends has been so crucial to me, like just getting through on those tough days to be able to escape and encourage one another. um, And just to like have that, keep that hope going, you know? So, and just the ability to create, I'll lastly just say, just, I think God has given us all the ability to create and I think just sometimes just the ability, it's just nice to daydream sometimes of what things could be, not get stuck there. But I think sometimes that's that's kind of what keeps me going, like just this expectant hope that something's better than what's happening right now. So, yeah. 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 Jana, how about you? Um, I mean, 
I, a lot of the same things that Eunice said, faith and taking time to just be still and slow down. Um, but I think the biggest thing for me in terms of self-care has been just kind of embracing my limits, limits, boundaries, and like being honest with myself, like Eunice was saying. And so if there's a day where I'm just overcome with grief about the state of race things in America, then I let myself grieve. Um, I've learned, I've tried to push through, I've tried to push through complex emotions my entire life and it gave me nothing but like anxiety, like clinical anxiety. So I'm done doing that. So I think it's, I think that's the biggest thing is like, this stuff is hard. And so of course, yeah, we're not going to stay there. And I remind myself like, okay, this, like, this is why, this is why I'm doing my job. This is why, like, I want to be more intentional about writing more. This is why, you know, like, like it, but I have, but I do have to grieve it for a little bit because it just doesn't do anything for me in terms of my emotional health for me to just go into like action items immediately. Like I have to hold space for those emotions. And I think that's helpful for anybody. Um, Cause you could very easily like, Scripture talks about it where Jesus says, like, what does it cost you if you, what does it mean if you gain the whole world, lose your soul? Like, you can gain, like, Instagram influence. You can gain, you know, you could write a book in the midst of quarantine about (laughs) stuff. But if you feel disconnected from yourself and not present or not having good relationships with friends and family, then, you know, what, what is that? Uh, So I think that's my biggest thing, just being honest on the hard days. I admit that it's hard and I have people who, you know, help me to do that. I just try not to push beyond it. For example, like I've gotten engaged. We haven't started wedding planning until this week because it's our racism is just taking up so much of our mental space and our energy that like we just didn't we didn't have it. So we gave ourselves permission in the midst of people asking like, "When are you guys gonna do this? When are you guys gonna do this?" And saying, "No, like this is the best way I can care for myself right now." Yeah, just admitting like I'm mentally tired. I'm giving mental energy to my job and to like the the events happening in this world that I just can't like walk away from. And that's about it. So I think, yeah, that's my biggest one. Michelle Obama has an amazing video called about like planning your joy. And I watched mm. it at the end of last year and I absolutely loved it. I'm one, because it's Michelle Obama, but two, just because yeah, that resonates. She's like, you know, sometimes you just need to like plan your joy, like put something on the calendar and make it a point to be like, this is like my moment. And and so that's something that's just stuck with me this year, even with COVID and everything of just like, what can I do that, you know, is kind of almost like a medal or treat or something, you know, after a season of just like powering through. Because I think there, there, there are those seasons where you know, you just have to like, hit the, like, just keep grinding. Like, you just got to keep pushing. And you know that you have to do that. Um, but also knowing that you also need to plan something to, like, restore yourself. And and that's always stuck with me, this idea of, like, planning joy. And I don't know. I was telling, I think I told you, Jana, this, that, like, I started making a list of things, like, yes. things that I enjoy or that bring me joy. And it sounds dumb. Like, it's something as little of, like, just wash sheets on my bed like (laughs) something about sleeping in just like fresh clean sheets just makes me happy or like the smell of a brand new book like getting a brand new book or being in a bookstore um Mm. going for a walk like 
I love baking because it gets my mind off of like following a recipe just takes my mind away from what's going on that day or doing puzzles and listening to like music from early 2000s that I can sing along to. Like I absolutely <laughs> love that stuff. So even for me, it's been like finding and COVID, like little things and writing them down that I can just pick from that I know are just going to give me that, that little moment of like joy. So yep. nice. That's awesome. Thank you both so much for sharing those tips and congratulations on your engagement, Jana. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm wondering, do you think that this is a real inflection point or do you think that this is more of the same where there will be a bunch of goodwill and a bunch of Black Lives Matter signs, but we'll eventually go back to how things were before? What do you think? Will this moment lead to lasting change in this nation? I am I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm more hopeful than I've been in a while. And that's, that's just me being really transparent. Um, like, but at the same time, it's like a foreboding hopefulness where I'm kind of like, all right, we'll see. That's how I feel. <laughs> so, like, it's a, it's, a, it's a balanced hopefulness. Um, because, yeah, like, there, there is truth to the fact that, like, like even with the, the generation that's coming up, like Generation Z and all these kids, like social justice is trendy. And also those kids, like it's not... It's they're not the just, cancel culture. They're the cancel culture. Woo, they'll find those those like social media posts from when you were 13 and just got on Facebook. Those kids do not play. You have to be pure in your social justice fight. Anyway, but like say that to say, like there's a generation that like, yeah, they... I, I feel that it's trendy right now. And even in some of the, even in some of the responses that I'm seeing where people are like, Oh, like we're having specifically in some churches where they're like, Oh, we're having a conversation with this black person. And it's like, all right, cool. But like this black person is, is on stage telling you the things they've been telling you for the last five years. And that's great. But like, we, but we gotta, like, we gotta keep it going. So I think the, the hope is, I think the one thing that makes me the most hopeful is, on this level, the global response. That, when I saw images coming out of, like, South Korea and Amsterdam and France of people, like, with Black Lives Matter signs, that that did something different for me. Because um, I don't, and you just correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember that, like, global response, like, the summer of 2016, when the things were Not really crazy. Not at all. Like, I don't remember that. So there's something to like the global response. And I think that COVID has done that too a little bit. Like we were all shut down as a globe. Doesn't matter if you're from Iran, Texas, Paris, like we are all fighting a virus. And so I think there's something that, in my opinion, that I think like since God's working all things together for good, there's this moment of like realizing our shared humanity, despite all these cultural lines and geographic lines to where now when I see people like protesting other countries saying black lives matter, it just like I, that I can't, like, I can't really put into words like that. That is my reason for hope. Um, it seemed like that level of response. Um, but again, the balance of it is, is that I'm like, all right, this, we've still got to do the things that are costly. Like we've still got to do the things that are uncomfortable. And if we lose, if we lose the ability to keep doing the uncomfortable things, like to keep truth telling, to keep, having conversations with friends and family members to like do it all at all those three levels, interpersonal, local, national, then like, that's where this will just be a moment, you know? Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a balanced hopefulness. There's something about the global response. To get to. 
And Eunice, what do you think? Are you hopeful that this will lead to lasting change? Is there anything else you want to add to what Jana said? I mean, kind of with what Jana was saying, I think I'm, I choose to remain hopeful because if I'm not hopeful, then just like living life is just going to suck in this world. (laughs) Um, But at the same time too, I think my hope is that people can separate. It is, it is part of it, but I hope people can separate the humanitarian issue from the political. And what I mean by that is that not that thinking that, we're having these issues because we have a person like Trump in office. We are, but these issues were going on well before he took office, if that makes sense. And so I don't want people to think that like, oh, as as long as we get a Democrat in office, you know, then things are going to be better. Race is suddenly going to go away. And like all this stuff is happening because, you know, it's like, it's a by like race is a bipartisan issue. Like, it's humanitarian pro- humanitarian problem. That's my personal opinion. And so like my fear is that people who can't sometimes separate the two are going to like just go vote. And then <laughs> once let's say a Democrat's elected suddenly think that like the problem is fixed. Okay. I, I don't need to worry about it. I'm going to let, I'm going to allow them to make the policies and stuff and trust them with that. Because in my mind, Democrats are not, are not racist and Republicans are racist when actually there's a lot of racism that happens within both. (laughs) And there's a lot of policies that happen that don't benefit, you know? And so I think where I, I get nervous is that people get silenced depending on where things go with this election. And that I would hope that people realize that, um, no, your voice is much needed. Yes having somebody else in office make some of those agendas and those policies easier to push through. But again, we're up against a system that was not built with people like me and others in mind. And so that systemic aspect of overturning the system really comes, it's it's individuals that have to take that upon to make a lifestyle of it, that they're going to constantly combat that in their day-to-day lives. So if people aren't willing to do that, I think that's where I get a little bit more pessimistic that I'm like, uh, we'll see what happens. Like, <laughs> I feel like there's some people that are just that are just waiting for the election to happen and then think their work is done once they go to the polls and vote. And that's that's not the case. And so I don't know. I think that would be my last thing is that, like, yes, go vote, but also, like, keep doing the work regardless of who's in office. Keep, you know, advocating for policies on the local level keep voting for the right people, but also like you may not have power per se, your vote may not matter like in, you know, a super, I don't know, in Arkansas, sorry, Jana, like your vote as a Democrat may not matter in Mississippi. However, where it does matter is when you're sitting across from the dinner table and you hear your grandma Mm -hmm. say the N-word or you see that person in the restaurant treat another person horribly or use something like that's when you have power to step in and change the narrative. And so um, remember that, always remember that you have more power than you think. Awesome. I love that. Jana, do you have anything to add to that? No, I mean, Eunice has said it and I said it before, like 
Barack Obama was in office when people got when nine people got killed in a Bible study by a guy who was not a police officer. He was just a community white supremacist. So she's entirely right. Like there's no for me, there's no arrival point in terms of legislation. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't want to diminish legislation because, like, we wouldn't even be able to vote if it weren't for the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Yeah, like, so I don't, but it's, there's no, we can't think that there's, like, this is the big win. It's like, oh, okay, if Trump's out of office, that's the big win. It's like, no, because that's how people started to believe that we were in a post-racial society was when they were like, oh, we have a black president. Race isn't a thing anymore. It's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Black people are poor and have more diseases. No, 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 no. Look at Barack, you know? So we can't, yeah, I just, I so strongly agree with you is that we can't think that we ever have an arrival point. Like there's going to be work to do just as long as we're living. And there's going to be work to do every single day. Um, and it's just making sure that we always show up to it. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much for your time today. I can't express how invaluable it is to have this conversation with you guys. So thank you for being so open and honest and sharing your stories on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Oh, and final question. How can people stay in touch with you guys? I mean, the Instagram blog that I'm trying to like relaunch and be consistent with is just hope and hunger. And it has a picture of me on it. And then my personal Instagram is just Jana underscore Allen, which if you follow Eunice, you can find me. And mine is Yoon underscore Max. Yoon underscore Max. So E-U-N underscore M-A-K. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Sean. Awesome. Go ahead and follow them and uh, stay connected with the great work that they're doing. Oh, and I just wanted to throw in that I'll be donating to a charity of, of your choice. So oh. each one of you guys can let me know a racial justice organization or a black-owned business that you'd like me to support, and I will be donating to Oh, thank you. Glad to oh. Be thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. History has proven that there are times where we mistake the visibility of these moments of pain for actually leveraging the power to change the written and unwritten rules of society. As Eunice and Jana mentioned in our interview, the work continues. The good news is that racial justice is becoming a trend and countries across the world are taking part in the protests. So do as they mentioned and make sure you're registered to vote at all levels of government. Make sure to have the difficult conversations with your loved ones. Demand accountability from your council members, local prosecutors, and police departments. And be mindful of microaggressions or unintentional discrimination of others based on skin color or pigmentation on their skin. Now is the time to create real and meaningful change. As Eunice said, racism is a humanitarian issue. We can move the nation forward with unity, justice, peace, love, and accountability. Do the work. Educate yourself on the history of race in the United States, and then talk to your black friends and listen to their own unique stories. We each have deeply ingrained biases that we may not even be aware of. Let's examine the systemic racism that has existed in the institutions we are a part of, and do the work of transforming the culture to be one where justice and equality are present. Show up, protest, march, and again, vote. Thanks for listening to this episode. Share it with your friends. And please leave us a review and remember to rate us five stars if you enjoyed listening to this podcast. Thank you.